this is a really important and clearly timely debate. Uh, so China and Russia, a deepening alliance. Um, and it's a really distinguished panel for you to hear from today. Um, over the last few years, we all know that we've seen a renewed focus on the China-Russia relationship. Um, but this is often framed really uh, as really a focus on both countries rejecting the rules-based international order, attacking multilateralism, focusing more internally on their uh, what they want to achieve and therefore projecting it internationally in a wolf warrior uh, style approach. But actually from a partnership of convenience to an alleged alliance with no limits and no forbidden areas of cooperation, the relationship between China and Russia is seemingly growing stronger. But how does it really look in reality? And I think there's a lot of questions with Ukraine about whether or not how we make sure we don't push Russia and China closer to one another. Um, so today our panelists are going to look at the history of China-Russia relations, asymmetry in the relationship, China's growing influence on the world stage, and how the invasion of Ukraine will affect that China-Russia relationship. Um, so the first speaker is Sergei Radchenko, um, who is the Wilson E. Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Um, he's written a lot about the Cold War, nuclear history, and obviously, of course, uh, Russia-Chinese foreign and security policies. Then we're going to go to Bonnie Lin, a fellow for Asian Security and Director of the China Power Project at the Centre for Strategic International Studies. Um, she previously was an Associate Director at RAND. And then we're going to hear from Dr. Rhea, uh, Maria Repnikova, who's an Assistant Professor in Global Communication at George State University, who looks a lot at China media and soft power. Uh, before I start, I just want to thank the China Research Group for all their work. Um, Chris and Julia, you are absolute powerhouses. And if you aren't subscribed to our daily newsletter, do please sign up. And a reminder that we have an exceptional podcast that has just launched called Talks on China, which is available on all good podcast platforms. Um, so we are now going to turn to Professor Sergei Radchenko. Um, over to hear from you. Thank you, Alicia, and thank you. I would like to also extend my gratitude to China Research Group for hosting me alongside uh, the other wonderful panelists here today for this discussion of China-Russia relations. A very hot topic. Everybody's talking China-Russia today. Uh, it's in the headlines. But interestingly, you know, this is a relationship that goes back centuries. It goes back centuries. Russia first encountered China in the 17th century as it advanced eastward, part of Russian, uh, early stages of Russian imperialism. And that was China that was uh, quite robust and basically repulsed uh, Russian imperialism at that time. So the early encounters between Russia and China were not at all so friendly. However, later, well, actually later encounters were not particularly friendly as well, but later Russia became stronger uh, as the 19th century progressed the Russian empire, advanced further and further into the east. Of course, China, the Chinese empire, the Qing empire declined and withered. And in the mid 19th century, Russia and China concluded a number of treaties which were effectively imposed on China. Uh, they uh, saw China lose ostensibly large swathes of territory in Siberia and the Far East, a fact that some Chinese nationalists have certainly not uh, quite reconciled themselves with even today. Now, later on uh, in the 20th century, uh, the Soviet Union and China became close communist allies after Mao Zedong and his Chinese Communist Party triumphed in their revolution in 1949. At that point, China and the Soviet Union drew close together in 1950. They signed a treaty of alliance, an actual treaty of alliance that was supposed to be eternal and unbreakable. Lo and behold, it fell apart after just 10 years. Why did it fall apart? There are all kinds of reasons why it may have, uh, but I prefer the explanation that the alliance was inherently unequal. It was like a hierarchical structure where China had to defer to the boss, the Soviet Union. China was always the younger brother in that relationship. And it had very different ideas uh, about global strategy, global strategy that was at odds with the Soviet global strategy. So they inevitably developed divergences and clashes. And of course, there was the personality clash between the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev and the uh, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, Mao Zedong. The alliance crashed with a loud thud by the 1960s. 
they were increasingly enemies, so much so that by 1969, China and the Soviet Union actually fought a border war in the area called Zhengbaodao, an island on the Usuru River that separates China from Russia in the Far East. And the Soviets, believe it or not, actually threatened the preemptive nuclear strike against China. We don't know if they were serious about it, but certainly this was floated out there as a potential threat, uh, something that was, by the way, understood by the United States, which is why in the late 1960s, early 1970s, you see an outreach from the United States to try to build up a relationship with China under Richard Nixon and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Now, that led then, of course, to Richard Nixon's visit to Beijing in 1972 and a triangular diplomacy that continued for much of the 1970s. Now, in that triangular diplomacy, the United States was in a very advantageous position because it had it could develop a relationship with the Soviet Union through the process known as detente, turned out to be short-lived, and also with China. Uh, and play China and the Soviet Union against one another. But China and the Soviet Union hated one another. They had ideological divergences. They had they uh, had amassed huge armies on both sides of the border and, and were really afraid that either side or the other will invade. So that situation continued through the 70s into the 1980s. And then from the early 1980s, the Soviets and the Chinese started to feel each other out to see if they could improve their relationship. This process started under Deng Xiaoping and the Soviet General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev yeah, approximately 1982, and then continued under, uh, um, uh, as you know, under Mikhail Gorbachev, when Mikhail Gorbachev visited Beijing in May 1989, this process was basically complete. They normalized their relationship. And at that point, we can speak of a new era in Sino-Soviet, soon to be Sino-Russian relations, because of obviously the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991. At that point, uh, the new Russian leader, President Boris Yeltsin, was uh, temporarily distracted by this new policy of engagement with the West, but very soon redirected his attention to Asia and started building up a relationship with China, which also even Yeltsin thought was very important to Russia. And indeed, if you look from the perspective of kind of long-term trajectory and long-term interest of Russia and China, I think they both understood that having a quarrel between the two is not in their national interest. Therefore, they had to maintain some kind of a constructive relationship. A process we see really gained speed under Boris Yeltsin and Jiang Zemin, who was the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. And then that, of course, continued into the present with the uh, current relationship between Putin and Xi Jinping. But you just have to understand that this process of Sino-Soviet rapprochement, Sino-Russian uh, normalization and um, improvement of their relationship actually continue. It's a continuous process all the way from the 1980s to the present day. So what we see today between China and Russia is not something that just appeared out of nowhere. It's a long historical process. That being said, what we see today in the relationship between China and Russia is not an alliance like in the 1950s. The 1950s alliance had well, it was more like a proper alliance. In other words, the, both sides had security guarantees uh, or offered security guarantees towards the other side. There was expectation if, let's say, one side uh, finds itself in, in conflict with a third party, then the other side should come to its help. By the way, this expectation proved uh, problematic when in 1959 China went to a war or a border clash with India. And the Soviets tried to stay neutral. The Chinese thought, well, this is a betrayal. This is an utter betrayal. You cannot do this to your communist ally. And that actually undermined the alliance itself. Well, today we don't have this. So what I prefer to call the Sino-Russian relationship today is an alignment rather than an alliance. That is to say, the two countries share specific interests and they stand shoulder to shoulder on a number of issues, including kind of a general opposition to what they call you know, Western hegemony or American hegemony. Uh, that being said, they still have their specific interest in specific areas where uh, they don't coincide with one another. That is to say, what, for example, Russia is doing in Ukraine does not necessarily uh, uh, meet with China's approval. If China were to do something in the South China Sea, this will not necessarily meet with Russia's approval, and they're free to maintain kind of benevolent neutrality. And this is what we're seeing today. 
playing out in, in connection with the crisis with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. China is maintaining benevolent neutrality. It's sitting on the fence. Rhetorically, sometimes it supports Russia. It also says it doesn't like NATO enlargement to the east, for example. But it is also not interested in actually backing Russia to the tilt and saying, oh, yeah, come on, we'll fight this war together. Uh, this is just not happening. The Chinese are calling for de-escalation and are even sticking, putting their hat in the ring there and trying to be mediators of some kind. So I will uh, finish my short remarks here and uh, over to you. Those were absolutely fantastic kind of historical overview and real detail about where China and Russia have come and where they are now. Um, I'm now going to hand over to Bonnie Lin, um, who's also going to give us a general overview into this topic. Thank you very much. And uh, echoing what Sergey said, I'm very delighted to be here and with this opportunity to engage with this crowd. So I just wanted to add a couple of quick points on Sergey's uh, history of how we got here with pointing it out that at least from the Chinese perspective, if you look at recent developments, there are, uh, and if you stand from Xi Jinping's perspective, there are very few uh, international leaders that has supported Xi Jinping to the same extent that Putin has. So if you look at the um, some of China's most important initiatives, so if you look at the Belt and Road Forum, uh, it's, it's been noted on the Chinese side that Putin personally supported and attended the first Belt and Road Forum in 2017 and the second one in 2019. If you look at COVID-19, uh, both, uh, both China and Russia have been more or less on the same page encountering what they view as politicization of the pandemic. And Putin has also publicly said it's not acceptable for other countries to blame Beijing for the pandemic. And most recently, to lead up to the February 4th statement, we saw both China and Russia push back against the US Democracy Summit, but also it was very clear and important for Beijing to have, and particularly for Xi, to, to see have Putin there to support him at the Beijing Olympics. So from China's perspective, uh, as the two countries have been growing closer, it's been clear to Xi Jinping that as, as he looks at world leaders that support China, there's very few outside of Putin uh, that are the, of the most important world leaders that have provided China that sort of support. Uh, now, I do want to comment a little bit on what's happening right now in Ukraine. We're seeing many uh, leading U.S. and Western analysts comment that China's decision to deepen relations with Russia on February 4th was one of the biggest foreign policy blunders that Xi Jinping has made. Uh, I'm not sure that that is the takeaway from Beijing right now, or that's Xi Jinping's perspective at all. In fact, earlier today, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi reaffirmed the importance of Russia as the most important close neighbor and strategic partner for China. He emphasized the need for both China and Russia to withstand international pressure and dangers and to continue pushing forward on the relationship. He also emphasized um, that the relationship is uh, built on no alliance, no confrontation, no targeting third country, and no interference by third countries either. So there's quite a bit of discussion in the, in, uh, particularly in the US media, media about the low limits relationship between China and Russia. I think that was true for probably a couple of weeks after the February 4th statement, but now we are seeing China coming back and trying to impose the limits again, again saying it's not an alliance. Um, and what I'm seeing is despite China's statements of how, uh, of how it opposes or how it does, not, it does not want, does not like the developments in Ukraine, exactly like Sergey mentioned, we're not seeing necessarily China rushing to, there's quite a bit of concern on China's end of standing closer to Russia with respect to Ukraine. And despite China's offers to play a peacemaking role in Ukraine, I don't actually see any fundamental change in a, or reassessment in China about the importance of its relationship with Russia. Um, we've seen that China has distanced itself from Russia on Ukraine, but we have not seen any major moves from China to pressure Russia to change or alter its behavior. I guess I would say it's still early to see um, uh, what's going on in terms of uh, as the Ukraine conflict further develops, but I feel we should not rule out the possibility that Beijing might be willing to take some more temporary measures to distance itself from Moscow on Ukraine. I think though, if China were to do that, it would try to make sure that its actions that it's taking is perceived as you know, the pure cost of doing business with Russia, right? Perceived on its own merits and not as China responding to Western pressure to sanction Russia. I do worry as we're moving forward that one wrong lesson learned China might be taking from the Ukraine conflict is that um, if China believes that its behavior will always be viewed as bad and problematic, no matter what it is, why would that limit China from moving closer to Russia? What, is, what does China have to lose? 
So if you look at the Ukraine conflict from Beijing's perspective, Beijing clearly does not view itself as an aggressor, does not view itself as taking any part in the Ukraine conflict, and has strongly denied that it has in any way greenlighted Putin's decision to use force. So if you take this Chinese perspective and you believe this, then China China is probably believing the narrative coming from the United States and other countries that China has blood on its hands, that China is responsible for Russia going into Ukraine as the United States and the West continuing to make up excuses for ways to counter and contain China. So then you could make the argument that if the, if the United States and other countries are set on opposing China anyways, what does China have to lose, right? In that sense, China cannot afford to lose Russia as a strategic partner. I think this is a very dark mentality and we can't rule out that this is how Beijing thinks. Um, and just a final note, we are seeing some of this reflected in what's coming out of the two sessions right now. So we're seeing increased Chinese defense spending to 7.1% in 2022, even as China's GDP has fallen to 5.5% target for, for this year. So I'll wrap it up here, but looking forward to the further discussion. Uh, thanks so much, Bonnie. <clears throat> Apologies, everyone, that was really helpful. Uh, we're now going to hear from Dr. Maria Repnikova, who's going to speak to us particularly about uh, the uh, media and the representations of relationships and so on. Maria, over to you. Thank you so much, Alicia. It's uh, an honor to be part of this uh, very distinguished group and to learn so much from the historical perspective of um, Sergei, but also from the geopolitical perspective from China, uh, from Bonnie. So I wanted to just briefly note a couple of points in terms of the relationship, the way that I've observed it over the past, um, I guess, 10 years since I've been looking at this, and then more focus on the media and social media in particular. So when it comes to the relationship, I just wanted to complicate a bit this idea of the alliance as well, kind of echoing Sergey, calling it an alignment. I wanted to further highlight the asymmetry that we're seeing today in China-Russia relations. I think it's important to keep that in mind as we think about this partnership. Um, so there are several layers of asymmetry. So first of all, when we think about the economic relationship, it's quite asymmetrical, right? Like uh, Russia is not even in top 10 partners for China when it comes to trade. Um, China makes up about 18% of total Russia, of Russia's trade, right? So still EU is still kind of the key partner for Russia when it comes to trade, but China makes up a pretty big fraction. Not the same thing for China when it comes to Russia. When we think about the terms and conditions of this relationship, these um, the investments in various other economic deals, China has been increasingly pressuring Russia to make concessions on various, various big deals, including when it comes to BRI. There have been many accounts from Russian analysts about some disappointment on the Russian side about what they're really gaining from the BRI project. Even though Putin shows up to these meetings and supports uh, China rhetorically, doesn't mean that they're really reaping the most of the benefits that they were expecting to reap from this project. Um, thirdly, there's a lot of still mutual suspicion. I mean, Sergey mentioned the territorial gains, right? That, China has made, uh, sorry, Russia has made um, uh, with the border conflicts, right? So I was looking at social media debates recently and we're seeing that uh, as many digital nationalists are supporting kind of the pro-Russia stance, they're also arguing that it's a good time to force Russia to make some concessions, concessions to get some of the land back. So basically, even though they're saying that, you know, this is kind of a, Russia is justified to, uh, to protect its own borders, maybe it's a good time for China to actually push back and get some of its own land back. So we see this kind of contradictions or maybe they're not contradictions, that's just the nature of this relationship. So mutual suspicion, I think still desire to maybe at some point, at least on behalf of this nationalistic sentiments, what they're projecting to get the land back. And we're seeing also very limited people to people exchanges, right? So if we think about just exchanges between people, not just geopolitical relations, there are not that many students exchanges. And overall, I think the mutual understanding when it comes to the layer beyond just the elites is, is quite limited. That's my, my sense from reading the accounts and looking at, um, at the societal side of this relationship. And geopolitically, if you think about Central Asia, right, China has already taken over Russia as the key trading partner for Central Asian nations. And there is quite a bit of friction there as well when it comes to who is the key partner for Central Asian states. Is it China or Russia? Can they really complement each other or is there competition as well? So that's just a brief uh, note in terms of asymmetry. So I think as we think about this relationship, we have to be cautious of not maybe overestimating um, how significant is this friendship beyond the rhetorics? Is, it, is there a real substance to it or is it about symbolism? I think that's something we have to keep in mind. When it comes to media representations, there's a symmetry here as well. It's something I want to highlight uh, or focus more of my remarks on. So as was already mentioned by Bonnie and um, Sergey, the comments that are coming out of Chinese uh, foreign ministry and Chinese spokespeople on this issue has been primarily focusing on kind of this I guess, relatively diplomatic uh, stance, but at the same time, it can be easily interpreted as very ambiguous and pro-Russia, right? It depends how one interprets this ambiguity. So they're saying that they're pro-peace, uh, the two sides should come together, and especially, you know, focusing on the fact that the conflict in Ukraine has deep historical roots, that it's complex, right? So this complexity means that, you know, it's not one-sided, so we shouldn't blame Russia unequivocally, we should kind of look at this, you know, in a more 
uh, holistic way, which means that perhaps Russia has some, uh, some right to defend its territory, its borders, um, protect its security, and so forth. So maybe it shouldn't go as far as it has gone, but at the very least, we should take into account Russia's perspective. I think that's how I'm interpreting some of these statements. So the way that Russian media and Russian commentators have interpreted this is very much that China stands with Russia. So I've been looking at state TV reporting and uh, state and more commercialized media. They don't always focus on China, but when they do, they, they highlight that Russia is not alone, right? It has China. So even though others have turned away and we're facing such significant sanctions uh, and essentially an attack on Russia's economy, uh, China is still there. So we have a really major partner that, that's with us. So that's how this ambiguity has been kind of co-opted or reinterpreted by the Russian side as, as, you know, in a positive way that China is standing with Russia. But when we look at Chinese media coverage of this issue, it's actually been kind of underplaying the crisis. If you look at major, you know, pages of Chinese uh, media, you know, major websites and so forth, uh, you don't see Ukraine crisis at the heart of the coverage the way you do in Western media. In fact, the key, the key focus is domestic, domestic issues, right? Domestic economy, Xi Jinping's success in leading this economic, you know, miracle. And now, of course, the party session, uh, the party congress sessions are starting. So there's a lot of debates again about what China is doing um, domestically and how it's going to reassert its power and uh, keep the growth up and so forth. And uh, coming out of the pandemic also is this kind of a success story, right? It managed to control for the pandemic. We kind of forgot about the pandemic now, but it's it's an important part of the narrative as well. Uh, free free this Ukraine conflict. So essentially, I think that there's kind of a an asymmetry there with Russian media highlighting kind of China as the partner, but uh, Chinese media. Um, underplaying the conflict altogether when we look at the coverage of, of this issue. And when we look at the social media side, just the presentations of social media, my, my take is that a lot of these pro-Russia stands or commentaries are really primarily anti-Western, so anti-US, anti-Western anti hegemony. So when you, they don't really you know, substantively engage with the conflict to try to understand who is at fault here or how this conflict developed, but they're really attacking NATO and particularly the US uh, for being hypocritical, for being hypocritical in... Um, in pushing China to take a more um, uncompromising position, but also vis-a-vis -vis Russia and vis-a-vis -vis the whole conflict that, you know, US has started so many wars and conflicts itself. It hasn't kept up uh, with its promises of peacekeeping operations. It has been an aggressor and it hasn't faced any repercussions. So, you know, basically a lot of the discussion uh, is very much focused on uh, delegitimizing um, the US and the West and kind of uh, highlighting this immoral sense, right? That it's, it's being, it's acting in an immoral manner. So, and that's very much to me echoing China's external communication in recent years, both on social media, but also by um, some so-called wolf warrior diplomats is very much focusing on kind of rebuking some of these uh, American human rights accusations and claims against China, but also highlighting that China maybe is a more moral power. It's, it's, you know, here in this case, it's taking kind of a more balanced stance. Today, they also announced they're sending aid to Ukraine. So they are somewhat shifting a little bit, but of course not saying anything more than that, as, as Bonnie mentioned, no significant rhetorical shift um, in this regard. But, uh, you know, highlighting that they have a certain stance that perhaps in some ways um, is more uh, legitimate than what the U.S. is offering, you know, that China has not been an aggressor, that's how they're positioning themselves, U.S. has. Um, China's democracy, it's more effective, efficient, it's responsive to public concerns, the U.S. democracy is failing. So a lot of these kind of commentaries are coming out, both by officials, but also on social media, which I found uh, quite interesting. And lastly, I think when we think about the lessons from this crisis, uh, will this really reassert, you know, China's friendship or stance vis-a-vis -vis Russia? Or is China going to look more, again, kind of inwardly by thinking, well, we should be more um, cautious and present more of a buffer zone for ourselves in dealing with potential sanctions from the West or kind of not face the same economic collapse that Russia's economy is now facing? So is this kind of a cautionary tale or is this more of a, a story of basically closer ties over time that, you know, China will keep standing with Russia? Or are they learning something from this crisis that perhaps will suggest something different. So I think the, the learning or kind of what, what they're reaping from this crisis as far as lessons for themselves, for China, I think it's something we can keep discussing. I find that very interesting. So thank you. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. Um, the first question, and we are now going into Q&A, there is a Q&A function. So please, please do put your questions in the Q&A. Um, I'm going to start the question for Sergey first. Um, Russia, um, as it is hit with all these economic sanctions and the West seeks to essentially uh, cut it off at its legs financially, is it going to become a vassal state to the Chinese? Uh, what are, um, apologies, this question was for Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie, what opportunities do you think China will be seeking to gain um, as we see Russia become economically weaker and obviously have, to have fewer friends that it can turn to? Oh, sorry, do you want me to answer the question? Do you, sorry, yeah, sorry, Bonnie, that one was for you. Apologies. Okay, okay no problem. So uh, the question was, what will China try to gain as Russia becomes economically weaker? 
Um, so I, I think it's um, to be seen in terms of what um, China is looking for. So, so my sense is that um, uh, the general, my general understanding is that if, as this conflict uh, uh, proceeds, or even if it wraps up with the Western sanctions, Russia will be more generally more dependent on China, which will give China more leverage. But what I don't know is what China, if there are any specific asks that China would try to take advantage of, given that Russia is uh, is more reliant on China. We already saw a number of areas in which the two have identified ways to further strengthen their relationship as identified in February 4th. So I would assume at, at the minimum of continuation of those, um, I would I would think that at least in the near term, China would be a little cautious of engaging more militarily with Russia, uh, just because it doesn't want to be associated with what's happening in Ukraine. So some of the agreements that two sides had identified on the military side in late 2021, I would see at least some pause on that, at least for the near term. In terms of the economic side, I do think that China could gain more in terms of trying to uh, get, uh, for example, acquire more Russian energy. Maybe there could be in the future more uh, interest in seeing what additional advanced uh, uh, military arms that Russia might be willing to sell. But I, I also think that in the near term, and this goes to a point that uh, Maria mentioned, there probably also is a a measure of to what extent can China support Russia, but also make sure that it's also doing okay domestically. Because as we're looking at the two sessions right now, one of the major themes is China faces a number of headwinds at home, right? And I would think that the priority for China right now is to make sure that it has its domestic portion, uh, deal with its domestic problems, and to the extent possible, then still can support Russia as what it's doing, uh, whether regardless of what's happening on the Ukraine side. So at least in the near term, I don't see China trying to really leverage this for any significant gains uh, left or right. But I would defer to Sergey on whether that's an accurate assessment on what Russia might be seeking from China on this. Fantastic. Thank you. And, and Sergey, obviously, feel free to comment on what Russia might be seeking. But we spend a lot of time seeing Russia uh, desperate for parity on the world stage with the US government. So whether it be peace talks or whether it be negotiations or wanting to be seen as being uh, amongst the kind of equal world leaders, being able to bring people together and control being an international peacemaker or beyond that. Um, can Russia accept being a junior partner in a relationship with China? Uh, it, difficult to see that. Uh, the Sino-Soviet alliance in the 1950s fell apart precisely because China could not accept its role as a junior partner, even though it was a lot weaker than the Soviet Union at that time. The alliance was, of course, was very unequal. Today we have alignment, non-alliance. Um, Russia is dependent on China in many ways. But to come back to this question of vassal state, you know, can it become a vassal state? What is a vassal state? Uh, would it have to defer to China's decision? I mean, look at North Korea, an insignificant little country in Northeast Asia with a brutal regime and a you know, very, very poor, desperate population. The Chinese are even having difficult time convincing the North Koreans to do what they want. Never mind a power like Russia that has an independent nuclear arsenal, a large military, uh, and, uh, and, and lots of options. Of course, those options are kind of constrained now as far as the West uh, comes. But I know I don't see Russia uh, either becoming a vassal state or even uh, you know, trying to become a vassal state. If the Chinese do pile pressure on Russia, um, uh, then we could see friction developing in this relationship. What we see at the moment, though, is the Chinese treating extremely carefully. Note, for example, what their reaction was when the Russians recently uh, sent their so-called peacekeepers to Kazakhstan. I don't think, by the way, this measure was coordinated with the Chinese or there was much of a consultation beforehand. Yeah, the Russians basically said, okay, we're going in because we see that as our backyard and we're just doing what we want. And that's despite the fact that Kazakhstan is also crucial to China's BRI and, you know, the whole, whole dream of more assertive Chinese foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. The Chinese were clearly not particularly happy. And in their um, rhetoric, tried to redirect 
Kazakhstan in the more acceptable direction of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and not, you know, they didn't want those affairs to be solved through uh, the collective um, security treaty organization, which is headed by Russia. So uh, nevertheless, you know, you see Russia basically acting quite independently and the Chinese acting very carefully in order not to create the impression that there are serious frictions in the relationship. They have managed, look, analysts have been predicting, some analysts, not me, some analysts have been predicting the Sino-Russian relationship would fall apart. Back in 2000, there are people saying, oh, you know, there's just marriage of convenience, they'll fall apart over there, there's going to be problems in Central Asia, there's going to be problems everywhere. Uh, you know, the Chinese will try to immigrate to Siberia and the Russians will be afraid of that. This has not happened. Actually, they have been able to resolve uh, their problems. This is not to say that the relationship does not have tensions, but somehow they've been able to work out their tensions. And, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that the alliance will uh, necessarily collapse. Alignment, Absolutely. I should say alignment, not alignment. That's up, fine. Maria, there's a question from Alexander McCall. He says that China's international relations, are they aimed at audiences outside of China or are they really just focus on internal Chinese audiences? Um, yeah, thanks for that question. I mean, when it comes to the focus of China's international relations, but especially, it's, I guess, communication, um, and soft power and diplomacy. I think the audience is very much dual. It's both domestic and ex external. So I have a book that just came out actually on Chinese soft power. And one of the th arguments there is that uh, unlike the kind of the Western conception of like soft power and public diplomacy, Chinese public diplomacy is very much both internally and externally oriented. So we see that there's a lot of emphasis on creating domestic cohesiveness, unity, and of course, also sparking out more patriotism and allegiance to the party as part of this external diplomatic uh, communication. So I think it's very much dual when it comes to the audience, and at some, at at certain occasions, domestic factor outweighs the external one. It depend, depends on the issue, but we see at times that domestic audience, domestic um, pressure is more significant than the external external audience. Brilliant. And, and Bonnie, the next one uh, is from Lee Jones. I don't know if you want to kick us off. Um, Lee says there's been differing positions on Ukraine have come out of China over the last week. Is this a reflection of contradictory interests and agendas within China or a lack of coherent strategy? Because I think we in the West too often uh, risk uh, saying that essentially China has one position and representing the Chinese Communist Party is this kind of monolith of opinion, monolith of action. Um, so it'd be helpful to understand where the fault lines uh, lie in terms of Russian relationship within China. Uh, so in terms of, I guess, China's differing position uh, from Russia on Ukraine, I don't see, rather, I don't see how the Chinese think that that is incompatible with is general desire to strengthen relationship with Russia. The, the way that Chinese compartmentalize this issue is that the overall trend is it wants a stronger strategic partnership with Russia and it views Russia as a key, um, I agree with Sergey, not ally, but like a key friend that it wants to be able to depend on. But as part of the relationship, uh, it never said that the two had to always be on the same page on every single issue, right? So from China's perspective, I don't think they see any contradictions between um, taking a more, how China's trying to position itself as a more neutral position on Ukraine versus a um, position on Russia that is still sort of strengthening the relationship. I would say that I personally don't believe that China really is taking that much of a neutral position on Ukraine from uh, as you know the Western sanctions are hitting on Russia, it will China will have to figure out what it wants to do. And I, it's pretty clear right now that China has uh, said that it does not want to abide by these sanctions and it will continue business as usual with Russia. That to me is not a clear position on Ukraine. That's not taking neutrality on Ukraine. That is in some way supporting Russia and providing somewhat of an economic lifeline as uh, Russia moves forward on Ukraine. Thank you. And Sergey, obviously on 4th of February, the strategic partnership was signed. Uh, in that, Beijing supported uh, Russia's demand that Ukraine not join NATO. Obviously, that happened in the context that there were already 100,000 troops gradually amassing on the border. Do you think this would have emboldened Putin? Or do you think that the strategic partnership, it's just us and academics looking into it a bit too much and thinking it might have helped give Putin a bit more confidence? I think I think the statement should be taken should be looked at separately from Ukraine. It, it, it's it's a logical conclusion to what has been happening in the 
Sino-Russian relationship for some time. It has some very interesting elements. For example, the two sides trying to redefine what it means to be democratic, like you know, arguing that China and Russia are both a democracies with a thousand-year history. And if you, you you read this statement, you can find those remarkable words about that. And you you have to think about it. What you know? What are they talking about? When was there you know democracy in Russia, perhaps under Ivan the Terrible? Is what there or maybe <clears throat> if you, you know, go back a thousand years, I think it's the Song Dynasty that we would have to find democracy in, uh, uh, in China. But anyway, you've got this remarkable, uh, remarkable effort to redefine democracy, redefine human rights, uh, and forge almost some sort of an ideological backbone to this alliance, which I find extremely fascinating on its own terms. Whether this emboldened Putin to a certain extent, uh, Putin in moving against Ukraine, had uh, uh, you know, made rational calculations. People have said that he's deranged, et cetera, et cetera. But in his own world, uh, he was making a rational calculation. And that calculation had to do both with the position of the West and the position of China and indeed the position of Ukraine. He did not expect the sort of unified response and condemnation and sanctions that he encountered. He expected something on the line of you know, 2014, maybe a little bit worse. He calculated that Ukraine is not covered by Article 5 of NATO. It's not member state of NATO. Therefore, NATO would never fight for Ukraine. He also did not anticipate this kind of resistance from the Ukrainians themselves. And of course, the United States appeared kind of weak, kind of weak, because uh, it had just withdrawn from Afghanistan. And uh, that was chaotic and uh, was preoccupied with Asia. And, uh, you know, he thought maybe they wouldn't look to Europe. And of course, China was the lifeline and the backbone. This close relationship, of course, allowed him to, even if you saw how he prepared the troops for the invasion of Ukraine, a lot of those troops came from the Far East and were transported from Siberia and the Far East to the border of Ukraine, exposing the border with China. If the Soviets from the 1970s came back to life today, they will look at the situation they would say, wait, this is crazy because our enemies are the Chinese. Well, now the relation with China is so close that it allowed uh, Putin to basically take the Russian military out of Siberia and move it to Europe and uh, be quite comfortable with it. Thank you very much. And Sergey, before I move away from you, a really interesting question that's coming from Lawrence is, it, it does appear like a lot of the West is looking uh, essentially to regime change is the only solution to end the conflict uh, in Ukraine, whilst they might not be saying so publicly. Um, what would be the impact on regime change within Russia? Obviously, we don't know who would replace Putin, but is the relationship really personality driven or does it go really beyond that, really leading on the historical and the kind of uh, the previous history of the, of the two countries? This is an extremely important question. Uh, here's here's my take on this. Okay, I'm generally very strongly opposed to Putin's uh, policies. I think they're an absolute disaster. His foreign policy, his domestic policy, everything is a huge, huge disaster. However, that being said, uh, Russia maintaining close relationship with China seems like a sensible policy to have. Keeping in mind that Russia and China are neighbors, they are divided by or united, as you prefer, by a very long border. And they have a very checkered history. In history, when China and the, the Russia or the Soviet Union were enemies, it didn't do either of them particularly well. So even if Putin dropped dead today or he was replaced by somebody or indeed Navalny was uh, uh, let out of jail and became president of Russia, I think it would be uh, in Russia's national interest for any leader of Russia to actually try to maintain a decent relationship with China. It would be in Russia's national interest. Now, would that exclude a, a, this kind of personal relationship, the chemistry that we have had between Putin and Xi Jinping, who have met, what, 38 times? 38 times, I believe, they have met. Uh, possibly, possibly. But, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to have this kind of personal chemistry to have a reasonable relationship. I mean, Boris Yeltsin had a reasonable relationship with, with, uh, with China. Even Mikhail Gorbachev was able to fix up this relationship. Remember, the current state, the current Sino-Russian rapprochement actually dates back to Mikhail Gorbachev, one of his most lasting legacies, as a matter of fact. 
That was a really fascinating answer. Thank you. Uh, Maria, there's a question that's come in um, about fault lines between Russia and China and their relationship. Um, and that goes into specifically, uh, that's from Maria, uh, but Timothy also pointed out about competing over India. Could you just give us an idea about some of the fault lines that exist between China and Russia and specifically where they sit in terms of competing influence over India? Yeah, I don't focus on India specifically, so I, I would defer maybe to the other colleagues to, to explain that situation more clearly. Sure. Is there anything more broadly on fault lines between Russia and China that you wish to draw upon? Yeah, well, I see, you know, specifically where I'm focused on Central Asia and thinking about, you know, collaboration versus competition framework. I think, you know, there's significant tension uh, when it comes to how they see one another, but also how Central Asia states um, attempt to maneuver between China and Russia and kind of navigate and seek alliances or relationships with both. So I guess, to me, this kind of regional competition generally complicates China-Russia relationship, like there is some degree of complementarity, but also competition. So seeing this, again, alliance, alignment, I think, you know, from my perspective, it's fractured by some of these regional um, competitive spaces, whether it's Central Asia, I don't know as much about the Indi competition uh, with regards to India. Um, but, you know, when we think about this, um, this lens of, you know, regional competition, I think it, it showcases that, um, yeah, there's a degree of in which they may be offering something different to the states, but at the same time, I think they're forcing them to choose to some degree as well. So that yields kind of some fractures, some frictions to this, to this uh, alignment or alliance, if you put it. Thank you. And Bonnie, um, Philippe has asked about how the UK and Ukraine have both called on China to play peacemaker. Um, realistically, is that an avenue they're going to want to jump into? And actually, do we even want them to be? <laughs> That's a good question. But maybe I can jump on really quickly on the India question first, just so we address the question. Uh, in terms of Russia and China competing for influence over India, I think that's an interesting question because uh, China and India have had a worsening relations. Uh, particularly in the last couple of years with all the different types of uh, conflicts and tensions, including Galvin Valley. So the main issue is where India sees itself vis-a-vis -vis Russia, right? Uh, given how much India depends on Russia for its arms. So right now, what there's, there's been quite a bit of discussion in DC is to what extent uh, will, uh, is it possible now, given what's happening in Ukraine, for India to move closer to the West, United States, Europe and whatnot, and further from Russia? I, I think what we've seen with India's abstention in the U.S. Security Council vote on Ukraine is that India is um, still relatively cautious given its dependencies on Russia. So I think there's not so much of a Russia-China competing over India. It's more of India stuck between uh, potentially closer relations with Russia versus the West. Uh, with respect to, um, sorry, what was the other question you asked? Uh, yeah, that's fine, but uh, calls for China to play peacemaker. Right, we, right. Would, but actually, would we even want them to? I don't, I think it does not hurt for China to play the role of peacemaker. I just don't think China's going to do very much. <laughs> uh, I think what China is going to do is encourage all sides to take responsibility and, and try to uh, take a step back. But I don't see China using leverage either way, whether it's on, uh, on Russia, on Ukraine. I just see China playing rhetoric and saying that it's playing its role. I'm really not doing much. So I think it doesn't hurt to have China communicate to Putin that you should try to negotiate or try to de-escalate. I just don't see China having a positive influence either way or, or for that matter, a significant influence either way. Fab, that's really, oh, sorry, that's really helpful. Um, I was just trying to, so I wasn't speedily going through enough people's questions enough. Maria, quick question around um, Southeast and Asian countries more and Central Asian countries, so Vietnam and Kazakhstan, for example. Stuart was asking about where China and Russia have been balancing each other somewhat. Um, will this drive countries more to the West, what's been happening in Ukraine? Or do you think actually it will drive them even further towards uh, China and Russia, um, knowing that China and Russia need more allies and friends at this time? Yeah, that's a tricky question, but one thing to point out is that, you know, one example is Kazakhstan, what we've seen despite all the recent events within Kazakhstan, major crackdowns on protests, there's, there have been some quite big protests in support of Ukraine. So some people came out and I think it's pretty dangerous, so they're taking huge risks to come out and support, you know, Ukraine and standing with Ukraine. So that to me speaks to at least some societal sentiment that, you know, not necessarily aligning with Russia in this case, certainly, but not with China. And of course, Russia also supplied troops and uh, all kinds of paramilitary support to crash uh, protests recently in Kazakhstan. So given that uh, recent, very recent, it's not even history, just recent events, 
Um, I imagine at least on a societal level, there's frustration with Russia's interference and they see themselves as kind of similar to Ukraine. They didn't get as much attention globally as Ukraine has and Russia didn't go as far in Kazakhstan as it has in Ukraine. But I think they would sense uh, kind of some degree of allegiance. But then on the leadership and the elite level, I think there's, they, they wouldn't quite express the same sentiments. And I imagine many people who support Ukraine would be um, potentially detained or criticized or forced, you know, face all kinds of consequences, not as harsh as in Russia, but maybe something along those lines. So I think we have to differentiate between kind of the elite level that may uh, face uh, quite a bit of challenge in terms of their statements. Do they support, you know, Russia? Do they stand with China? Of course, Russia and China are closer in this case. Um, or do they support the West? Um, you know, that, that's kind of a more likely to be more neutral on, on, the, on, the, on the elite side and maybe some more pro-Russia statements. But in the context of society itself, I think there's quite a bit of support for Ukraine. Thank you. And I'm aware that we are coming close to the end of time. Um, so I've got one final question for all the panelists, although Bonnie, I'm going to be very cheeky and give you two in the final. Um, but just a quick reminder to everyone that we hold regular events as the China Research Group. So please do make sure you sign up. And our wonderful podcast that Chris works so hard on is available on all good podcast platforms. Um, so my final question to all uh, panelists comes from Lisa Hu. And I think we all want to know your answer on this, which is about Ukraine and Taiwan and whether we are at risk of creating a false parallel. Um, so will Western sanctions on Russia unsettle China in its potential plans to invade Taiwan by 2049-2050? Or will strengthening economic relations between Russia and China ultimately lessen China's dependence on Western markets, make an invasion of Taiwan even more likely? And how likely is it that the entirety of the situation in Ukraine is going to actually bring Russia and China closer together? And then Bonnie, just to there cheek, could give you a sub-question from somebody. Uh, the South Korean election on Wednesday, if Yoon wins, what impact will that also have on Taiwan? Uh, so I will start, Maria, if you want to start with the answer on how you feel about the parallel between Taiwan and Ukraine, and then I'll go to Sergei and then we'll finish with Bonnie. Right, so the parallel between Ukraine and Taiwan. So first of all, on, again, social media and media's perspective for size, we see that the parallels are clearly drawn. There are a lot of commentators comparing Ukraine and Taiwan and essentially highlighting that, you know, Taiwan is very similar. It's a very similar situation. They're kind of calling for unification and there's extreme sentiment of nationalism. At the same time, on the official side today, Wang Yi made a statement that Ukraine and Taiwan are fundamentally different issues because Taiwan is kind of an internal affair. It's part of China's internal domestic affair versus Ukraine, which is, you know, he's referring to being more external. It's, it's still a, it's an independent state, right? So, so he did make that distinction, even though nationalists are calling for a stronger line, officially a much more kind of diplomatic uh, line has been, has been uh, channeled. And when it comes to what will happen in the future, I guess looking at the recent refocus on domestic economy, but at the same time, of course, military spending, it's a bit hard to tell which way China is going to turn. Um, from my perspective, I see that maybe, again, as I said earlier, this presents more of a cautionary tale in terms of you know, being cut off from the global international system and being hit by similar sanctions would you know, potentially destroy Chinese economy. So I see this maybe as more of, a, more of a cautionary tale in terms of how far China would go in Taiwan. But if you look at the military spending increasing and the extreme nationalistic sentiment, it can also you know, highlight a different perspective that maybe there's actually more possibility, more potential for China to go further. So not a very, you know, straightforward answer, but I, I see two sides, two possibilities, two scenarios in this, in this, when it comes to this question. Thank you. Sergey, over to you. I would endorse every word that, that Maria has just said. I, I think she's right on, on the uh, target there. You know, there's a Chinese saying, uh to uh how does it go uh to kill a chicken in order to scare a monkey and you know you know the saying you know to kill a chicken to scare a monkey uh, uh <laughs> this is this is where you sort of in you know in in application to russia and china uh it is where the west supplies sanctions on russia russia being the uh chicken in order to scare the monkey in which case you know china becomes the monkey um, you know, you wonder about this. You wonder what Beijing will think, having witnessed what just happened to Russia. Russia is in disarray. I mean, look, it has it, it is in the state of utter economic meltdown. They could talk about multipolar world order and hegemony and whatnot, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Look what happened. You know, we can see the results. The Chinese are scratching their heads and they are. Uh, clearly taking notes, 
as far as we can tell. You know, the Chinese government is always very good at observing others. They have mm -hmm. taken notes from, you know, the Soviet collapse, from the Gulf War, for example, and so on and so forth, and adopted their policies. And I think they're also taking notes from this. And in general, if you look at their behavior, they're quite risk averse. So those people who predicted that the moment Russia invaded Ukraine, the Chinese would say, hey, let's go invade Taiwan. Uh, we, uh, we haven't seen this happen. We haven't seen this happen. However, I, I, I would also agree with Maria that the prospect uh, remains for Chinese military action against Taiwan. And of course, much here depends on the outcome of Russia's adventure, yeah. misadventure in Ukraine. If Russia gets away with it, even at the cost of sanctions, then perhaps the Chinese will, uh, you know, consider this as part of their calculations. But it's, uh, we'll have to come, we'll have to live and see. Thank you, Sergey. And least, uh, finally, but not least, or whatever the phrase might be, clearly my mind is caught up in chickens and monkeys and unable to now frame sentences. Uh, Bonnie, just briefly on the South Korean election, whether that will embolden Xi uh, to act quicker on Taiwan. And then finally, uh, what parallels, if any, can be drawn between Ukraine and uh, Taiwan? So I don't think the South Korean election is going to impact Xi's calculation on Taiwan or the China-Russia relationship. I, I think what we're seeing with all the statements is China wants to make the China-Russia relationship to the extent possible dependent on the dynamics between the two sides. Uh, obviously, that is more probably going to be more idealistic than reality, but it still shows the general direction of where China is going in terms of that. Uh, with respect to Taiwan, uh, I think that there are two things that I'm watching. One is exactly like what uh, Maria and Sergey mentioned, Chinese lessons learned from Ukraine. And uh, I commented last week on what I think China's lesson learned could be right now, but I have to say with the conflict evolving, China's lesson learned could actually evolve day by day or week by week. So I would just be very cautious of right now, based on what we're seeing, to, to uh, conclude that the lesson learned from China is that the costs for a Taiwan invasion are going to be much higher. It could be this, this reassessment, this could be reassessed longer term, and it, right now it's just too early to say. The other thing I want to point out is, given all these linkages, both in the media, but also China's attempts to refute the linkages between China and Taiwan, there has been increased focus on Taiwan right now, which has sparked more uh, support for Taiwan internationally, but also more awareness within Taiwan that, hey, it could actually happen to them. So there is probably a renewed um, investment in Taiwan's defense, uh, both internally, but externally. And um, China is viewing that as, as problematic. China sees this as, um, international community as well as the United States supporting more Taiwan independence. So I wouldn't, I, there is a linkage in that respect that I am worried that China is more worried now about Taiwan than before because it's seeing all these linkages. But I don't see this as China accelerating its timeline for evasion or any of that anytime soon because of China's 20 party Congress. But there is elevated concern with respect to China on Taiwan now because of what it's seeing in terms of international community's reactions to Ukraine. Brilliant. Well, in which case, uh, first of all, a massive thank you to Sergey, Maria and Bonnie for what was a really informative session. I know I learned lots, um, but also a massive thank you to all the participants, because without you, we wouldn't be here. Um, and those were some really amazing questions. And I, I'm so sorry I couldn't get to all of them, but hopefully in a future session. Um, in the meantime, I think we've all learned a great deal about the Russia-Chinese relationship. And uh, I'm sure the next few weeks, we'll all be learning a lot more about it. So thank you so much to all of you. Thank you to China Research Group. A big thank you to Chris and Julia, who make everything happen here. Um, and please do sign up for the newsletter and the podcast. And we hope to see you at a future event. Bye, everyone. Bye.